Good morning, everyone. I'm going to be reading from Psalm 23, verses 1 through 4. The Lord is my shepherd. I lack nothing. He lets me rest in grassy meadows. He leads me to restful waters. He keeps me alive. He guides me in proper paths for the sake of his good name. Even when I walk through the darkest valley, I fear no danger because you are with me. So we talked about our uh, routines earlier. And I have a routine that I need to go through because if I don't do this routine, I live for them. If I don't go through them, my entire day is out of whack because I've probably missed something out. Um, and so my typical routine is to get up in the morning, put my contacts on, then I go and get the kids ready, and then uh, they go brush their teeth, and while, while they do that, I get ready, then we all head downstairs. And I start getting breakfast ready, I'll put the coffee on. While the coffee's going, I have to, I have to make snack for the kids, and then they eat breakfast, and I'll finish getting ready, because I take forever. <laughs> and then uh, when, by the time, when they're done eating, um, then I tell them to put their hats, I have to say this in order, their hats, their scarves, their gloves, their jackets, and their shoes on. And while they do that, I have just enough time to load the dishwasher, because it takes them that long. And then we head out the door. And uh, I know it sounds like a lot, but I swear it's like organized chaos. It works. And uh, yeah, sometimes I get lost in that routine. Has anyone ever done that? You know, you, you get so used to doing this monotonous routine that you don't even think about it. And before you know it, you're out the door, you're halfway down to the train station, and you've wondered, did I lock my front door? Have I turned off the oven? Or if you're like me or any other mom, you might have wondered, did I brush my teeth this morning? <laughs> we get lost in that because our routine, some, some, for some of us, it gives us a sense of security. We have a sense of security in knowing that these are the things that I've got to get done, and I know that this will set my day off right. And if you aren't a routine person, you may still have some rhythmic practices that you have to go through that, that ground you. And so I imagine that the sheep and the shepherd have these similar routines that I just read in Psalm 23, that the shepherd guides his sheep to green pastures, to graze and to still waters, to drink, paying close attention to when in the day the sheep need rest. And then they graze some more and drink some more before heading back home. The sheep feel secure that the shepherd will take care of them and lead them to a place to eat and to drink and make space for them for rest. We are unpacking this Sam what I said, Sam. We are unpacking this psalm. <laughs> we are unpacking this psalm through this period of Lent. And uh, when we were sitting down to plan this series at the end of last year, it was that long ago, um, I said I really wanted to do a series on psalms. And it was because of something I read by Walter Brueggemann. Has anyone heard of Walter Brueggemann? Nice, a couple of hands went up, some nods. Don't worry if you haven't heard of him. I didn't either until I took an interest in theology. And the only reason I read it was because my fellowship that I'm going through had us read a chapter from one of his books, The Spirituality of the Sun. So if you're interested, you can look it up. But I'm being honest, I read just the one chapter. It was a hard read, but it was really good. So we talked, in that chapter, he talked about the cycle of praise and lament that happens in Psalms. And he calls it the cycle of orientation, disorientation, 
and then reorientation. And this is a cycle that we often go through in life, like the highs and the lows of life, right? So we cycle through a life high when we feel oriented and comfortable and at peace. Then we might feel a low when something happens that disorients us or tests our faith. We work through it and then we climb back to a high in a journey of reorientation. So I'm explaining all of that because we felt as though when we are planning that as we entered through this period of Lent, that it would be a good idea to go through the same cycle as they do in Psalms to prepare our hearts for Easter. So let's just jump straight in. In that first line, if you have your phone, you can follow Psalm 23 on your phone because I'll be referring back to it. Um, you can see in those first few verses, you can see orientation happen, right? You can recognize the praise and comfort. Praise in the shepherd that brings everything from food and comfort to, and nourishment to rest and guidance. Brueggemann calls this sense of security the sacred canopy. And much like, um, which is much like the sacred canopy that I mentioned earlier in the routines, the daily routines that I go through, that um, set me up for the day ahead of me and ground me. The sacred canopy gives us security. But when I read through those first few verses of Psalm, I don't immediately feel reassured or comforted. I feel like when I read those first few verses of Psalm 23 that it's a little disingenuous. Actually, I feel like it's a little cliche because I've heard Psalm 23 so many times. And now, because I'm reading the Bible more critically, it doesn't give me comfort at all because when I read that, I think, I'm not sheep. <laughs> I'm not sheep that only relies on grass and water for my physical and spiritual nourishment. It just seems too easy. So those first few verses don't comfort me because reading about how a shepherd tends sheep doesn't provide me with sufficient confidence in the needs of my life being met because I've got to work. I have to go to the grocery store for food and drink. I, have, I don't have anyone telling me Mira, you know, you should really take a rest now. You should nap now. It's bedtime. Go to bed a little earlier. No, I overwork. I fight sleep. I have major FOMO. Who has major FOMO? If I don't get to do all the things. So rest doesn't come easily to me. Not, not like it does sheep. <laughs> to me, it sounds too ideal, and it sounds unattainable. David writes in verse 4, further down, even when I walk through the darkest valley, I fear no danger because you are with me. Let's look at that first part. Even when I walk through the darkest valley. Now that's something I know all about. That's something I'm familiar with. And I'm sure that it's familiar to many of you sitting right here. We've all walked through that valley, right? That metaphorical valley of that deep, that place of deep grief, sadness, or stress, or depression. The valley that David is writing about is actually a physical valley. He's talking about a real valley that's in Israel, a valley that is uh, the path that goes from Jerusalem to Jericho. And to give you an idea of how treacherous that was, this valley was uh, in a canyon between two really steep mountains. And because the mountains were so steep, it never really got sunlight unless the sun was up ahead. 
So it was really dark in that valley, and it was cold. And this valley, um, it was really steep and treacherous because it would start at, in Jerusalem, it would start at 2,500 feet above sea level. And then by the time you walk through and you get to Jericho, you'd end up about 25 feet below sea level. I, I'm not going to do the math for you right now, but that's steep. And it's a long and difficult way to travel. Um, it also had a lot of cliffs, so it was really easy to get lost in there. It also was full of caves. And what would happen was bandits would hide in these caves and then ambush travelers who were passing through. This valley didn't have a name, but it was referred to, because of this, it was referred to as the Valley of the Shadow of Death. And now David uses a very specific word for death to describe this valley. This word, when translated, means the deepest darkness. And it doesn't appear in many places in the Bible. Um, it appears a lot of times in Job. But before I get into that, I'll explain that first, David could have called this valley anything. David could have called it the valley of despair, the valley of misery, the valley of turmoil. But David uses this specific term to cover an array of life experiences. Because you remember the story of Job, right? All the bad things that could happen happened to Job. Job, he lost his entire family, except for his wife. His, all his homes got reduced to dust. He lost all his earthly possessions. And then to top it off, he got really sick. His entire body became covered in boils and, and rashes and blisters. So this, this word that David used for the valley of the darkest, of the deepest darkness is meant to cover all of life's experiences like the spiritual and metaphorical darkness, like the danger, the uncertainty, the fear of getting lost, the sense of being alone. Like the use of the word in Job, it was meant to cover, it was meant to cover a whole spectrum of life's world's worst problems. And he uses this word because every single person who walks through that, that path feels this way. And every single person at one point in their life, at least, and if not, at many times, have experienced what it feels like to walk a valley of darkness. And I believe that there's not a person in this room, not a single person in this room, that has never walked a, met a metaphorical valley of darkness in their life. I, when I think of my own life, I can think of several valleys that I've walked through, I, um, even in this year. But the one that sticks out to me, the one that marked the most significant change in my life was when my father died. I was, um, in, I was living in Australia at the time, and my dad passed away in Hong Kong, which is where I grew up. And so I left Australia. I left my job. I left the community that I built there. I left everything to go and be with my family and be this pillar of support for them. But what I found instead is I found myself in this deep, dark valley where I felt really alone and had no one to lean on. Because I didn't, I didn't know anyone there. I hadn't lived there for eight years. My entire family had fallen apart. My, I wasn't working, so I felt lost and I had no sense of purpose. I felt really alone and having no one to turn to, I turned to alcohol. Eventually, my best friend had to intervene a few months later and asked me to come and live with her um, because she was afraid for where my life was going. So this 
time of my life is what Brueggemann would call disorientation. It's when your world begins to collapse, when you're thrown into a place of uncertainty, of discomfort, where you might feel insecure or unsafe. And as you get deeper into that place of disorientation, you might feel a sense of despair, a sense of home hopelessness. And being in that space is scary and it's miserable. And so then Psalm 23 is often read in funerals because it's meant to bring hope and comfort to those that read it. But it didn't bring hope and comfort to me. It didn't feel that way because I felt this huge disconnect with what was happening in my life and what I was reading about in Psalm 23. I couldn't find the sacred canopy of God within that psalm. All I knew was that no one understood what I was going through, not even my family who were all grieving differently, and most certainly not any of my friends. I remember one evening during that time that I was grieving, I didn't feel like being around anyone, I didn't go out that night, and I had a, a friend of mine that I'd reconnected with from high school rang me and said, you know, are you coming out tonight? Because that's what you do in Hong Kong in your early 20s. And I was like, no, my, my, this tonight is my dad's second month anniversary of his death, and I don't want to be around anybody. And he said, Mira, you just need to move on. You need to live your life. This guy just didn't get it. And I had friends that would tell me, your dad would want you to be strong. Others that would say, he's in heaven now, so he's not suffering anymore. I had one friend ask me how old my father was, and I said that he was 74. And they said, well, at least he lived a full life. No one got it. No one understood how much pain that I was in. People didn't know how to respond to my brokenness. And so I felt ashamed of carrying all this pain and not knowing what to do with it. So, Instead, what I did is I found my sacred canopy in having to just deal with it on my own. Now that place where no one really understands what you're going through, or no one is willing to hold that space for you, is a really lonely place. I want you to take a moment to think about when was the last time you were in that place, walking through a shadow, a valley of shadow of darkness, because we've all been there. Just a few seconds. I want you to close your eyes and just think about it for a moment. You can open your eyes. When I look around this room, there's a pretty diverse group of people here. We all have different stories and we carry different baggage. It doesn't matter who you are, or where you've been and what you're going through, when we are in the deepest, darkest shadows of the valley, when your eyes are shut, we all see darkness the same way. The next psalm, the next line in David's psalm is, I feel no danger, for you are with me. When you get to a place in that valley where you've just reached rock bottom and there's nothing left of you, what do you do? you start speaking to God directly, right? Just like this psalmist has done. Up to this point, God is referred to in the third person. If you look back, you'll see that the psalmist says, the Lord, he makes me, he leads me, he guides me. 
And then once he's in the valley, the psalmist gets personal and speaks directly to God. He says, you are with me. The psalmist recognizes that the only way into reorientation is in experiencing the promise of the grace and mercy of God personally. God goes from third person he to second person you because now the psalmist can feel God's presence and he knows God. He knows that God is there. But when I was walking the valley of grieving my father's death, I was in so deep that I could no longer see God. I could no longer feel God. Instead of saying, you are with me, what I asked God was, where are you? Where the hell are you in the midst of all of this suffering? When are you going to show up? Because I'm standing here. I am waiting. I am right here. But you are not here. But what I did recognize was the image of God that was reflected in my best friend when she embraced me and loved on me. She recognized that I was walking right into the path of death, really, and said, come, come here, stay with me, I'll take care of you. When I couldn't feel the presence of Christ, she reflected that in leading me to rest in her home and with her family. I peeled away the shame in accepting help, and I let go of the canopy of pride that I was hiding under, and I was able to rebuild my sacred canopy in the truth of knowing that my God cares about me, and that was reflected in my best friend. I wish that I could end that sermon right here and say, there is hope. God comes, God comes and God moves in the form of our community when we take care of one another. I wish that I could say that, but I can't. I can't because when I, when I woke up Friday morning, I woke up to the news that 50 people had been shot in an organized terrorist attack in New Zealand. And now all those families are walking that valley right now. I spent that Friday and yesterday at a gospel and race conference, and I heard the stories of Native Americans, of Korean Americans, of Japanese Americans, Filipino Americans, Indian Americans, Liberian Americans, Guyanese Americans, African Americans, Black Americans, Latinx Americans, and I'm sure there were many more that, I that don't quite fit into a label. I heard their stories, and guess what? They are all still very much walking in the valley of the very, of very deepest, darkest, of shadows. They and many people in this room are, who are carrying some heavy burdens this morning are walking through that valley, feeling alone and having a hard time connecting with the reality of this psalm. There is a culture in our faith of thoughts and prayers. Am I right? A very little action and it means that many of us continue to walk in some very real valleys without being able to experience the hope of God that comes when God's light is reflected back onto us. And it reminds me of a passage in James that talks about faith without action. And I'm going to read the message version. Dear friends, do you think you'll get anywhere in this life if you learn all the right words but never do anything? 
does merely talking about faith indicate that a person really has it? For instance, you come, in a, you come upon an old friend dressed in rags and half-starved and say, good morning, friend, be clothed in Christ, be filled with the Holy Spirit, and walk off without providing so much as a coat or a cup of soup? Where does that get you? Isn't it obvious that God talk without God acts is outrageous nonsense? Friends, why are we so bad at this? We have no problem being in community when it comes to food or outdoor concerts, and I'm not diminishing that. There is a time and a place for that community, but we don't respond to brokenness or weakness well. What would it look like if in our brokenness, if our brokenness and our weakness brought us together? What would it look like if we reflected that hope and promise of the sacred canopy of God's grace to one another? We have a greater responsibility towards one another, and we need to do better at walking hand in hand through the valley. There's so many of us who have been walking in the shadows for too long. There's so many of us that are walking in valleys that have been robbed and we're being robbed of life by bandits of shame, of anxiety, of depression, of insecurity, of discrimination and marginalization. And that's just inside this church. What's, what about what's happening outside the walls of this church? What about the valleys of poverty, of domestic violence, labor exploitation, separation of families at the border, of, a, of Islamophobia? The same valley that David wrote of, that valley from Jerusalem to Jericho, is the same valley where we read of the story of the Good Samaritan, the one who helped the man who had been beaten and robbed and left on the side of the road. He was ignored by the priest and then by the Levite, but it was the Samaritan, someone who was already walking their own valley because they were an outsider and they were a marginalized person, carrying his own set of problems, he was the only one that stopped and helped. And so I ask us this morning, have we allowed our rhythms and our routines to distract us from what's going on in the world around us or distract us from what's going on in this community? Have we gone on autopilot as soon as we enter the doors of this church and we've stepped over or walked around someone in our community that's in need? or even when we go about our daily lives. I believe that in order for us to know that God is there, that we need to be the light of God to one another and to those in need. Dr. Reverend Nicholas Wood of Oxford Theological Seminary says, faith in God is faith in someone other than myself, and such a knowledge as it brings is partial and depends on the willingness of the other to disclose himself to me and my willingness to attend to respond. Our faith challenges us to bring the reality of those still waters and green pastures to those who need it most, because those valleys are very real. So it's up to you. It's up to you to take that calling, to walk hand in hand with another person in need when you see them in distress, or when you see communities of people lamenting. It's up to you. Because if you don't take it up, somebody else will. Because that is God's promise. He will be there. Last week, a forefront mom, right here actually, Beatrice, 
she reached out to a group of um, forefront moms. She's uh, renovating her home. And uh, in the process of renovation, she'd come home, go and check out the renovation, her, the place where they were renovating, and then come back to her home and, and um, take care of her daughter, Eliza. And then in, during the week, as time went by, she, she fell behind on some of the housework. So she reached out. She reached out to a group of moms on a text. So Jess Cerruti, Maribeth Caseglia, Mar Maggie Torrance, and Lauren Callahan and myself, we all rolled up. We rolled up, <laughs> armed with Swiffers, vacuums, and paper towels. We brought still waters and green pastures in the form of wine and takeout. <laughs> this is how the shepherd moves. This is how the shepherd moves to give us physical and spiritual nourishment. You might be sitting here this morning because you are deep in that valley and you are in the thick of it. It's cold, it's dark, and you don't see anyone. And there's a disconnect between Psalm 23 and the reality of your life. And life just really seems hopeless. I'm encouraging you to hold to the fact and remember that the sheep, every time they crossed through that treacherous valley, they trusted in the shepherd. They trusted that walking through, as frequent as they did, that they made it out at the other end every single time. That is the cycle that I'm talking about. They walked through that valley, ended up alive on the other side each and every time because there's a pr that is the promise that God gives us. That is the promise of hope to come. That the only thing that can follow disorientation is reorientation, and that is what we need to hold on to. There is a comfort in knowing that this is just a season, that this is where the psalmist seeks comfort. It is in always coming back to the promise and the praise that God is there. That is the sacred can canopy that will never fail us, it is a sacred canopy that we must always come back to. God cares about your life and promises to lead you out of that valley of the shadows of the deepest darkness. In this time of Lent, I want to encourage you and tell you, don't be afraid to walk in that valley and acknowledge the things that are keeping you from living life fully. Allow yourself to come face to face with those shadows. Allow yourself to trust in that time of disorientation. Trust that reorientation will come. Trust that the celebration of Easter Sunday will come. Don't be afraid to face that valley because our sacred canopy is the promise that this season will pass and new and flourishing life will come. Let us pray. Dear God, I don't, I don't know what people are carrying in this room. I don't know how heavy or how light their burdens are. I don't know how long they've been walking in those valleys. I don't know if they're carrying the grief or Friday or they, 
just couldn't find the space because they're carrying enough grief in their hearts. I'm thankful, God, that you, you come and you enter that space, that Holy Spirit, that you take those burdens and you take that grief and you carry it for us. And I ask, God, that you give us a fresh revelation of what that looks like, that you show us where we can reflect the light of hope to one another, and you open our eyes to the light of hope that is reflected in others, God. I ask that you walk with us through this season so that we do not have to be afraid. In your name we pray, amen.